Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I am rejoined stateside by world traveler Terry Fakes. Yep, we uh, had another successful trip to Israel. Didn't really plan to do two in one year, but it just worked out that way, and uh, we had a, had a really good trip. Well, I'm glad to have you back on the podcast. I know everybody else is as well. We wanted to reflect on something this week uh, that we both had been talking about before you left, which was the last Together for the Gospel conference. And this is a conference that we both have been to. It's something I always looked forward to. I was sad to hear that it was going to be the last one. And I get that there are good reasons for that. And I think their thought was it kind of had run its course, but it's made me reflect on Together for the Gospel, both specifically the content and the, the conference itself and the times that we've had going to it, but also the broader evangelical reformed movement that is summed up in Together for the Gospel. And so you had some people, they even addressed this in the first panel at the conference this year, some people coming out and commenting, this is the end of the young, restless, and reformed movement, which has really splintered in the last, I would say, five or six years, especially post-2016. A lot of these guys that before that were united theologically have now become disparate culturally or politically. And so that, that right. was kind of an interesting feature. But I think the most guiding thought that I've had about Together for the Gospel is just the impact the preaching has always had. I mean, these, right. these conference messages have just made a huge impact on me. Uh, they're aimed at pastors, preachers, but they're also aimed at people that just want to understand what it means to keep the gospel central what it means to do ministry that's inspired by a common commitment to Jesus life, death and resurrection. And this year there were several really good messages. What, what, do you, what is together for the gospel meant to you or what thoughts did you have this year as they had the last one? Well, I was a little sad on the one hand, but I also do respect their wisdom in knowing when things should end and making room for other things to begin. But I am sad. I will tell you the biggest, probably the biggest thing there are two things for me. One was being around that many pastors for a couple of days. Every It was only every two years. and But being around that many pastors uh, was just really invigorating and rejuvenating for me. It was the worship was great. The singing, it just it was it was a very rejuvenating experience. The second thing is I was introduced to a number of speakers through T4G. H.B. Charles, if anybody is familiar with him, I was introduced to his preaching through T4G, and I really like H.B. Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ligon Duncan, I had not listened to, you may have, but I was not familiar with Ligon Duncan until T4G, and he's probably one of my favorite preachers, hands down. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think over the years, I think the, I went for the first time when I was on staff at Eagle Heights with the Eagle Heights staff in 2012 and went every year until 2020 when they canceled it for COVID and watched that. And then this year it just worked out perfectly. We had just brought Davey home from the hospital, couldn't do anything anyway. So we sat there and watched some of the sessions from this year. But I, I, I compiled a list this week of, uh, and we'll include this in the notes, uh, of my favorite five sermons from Together for the Gospel. And so I'll start with Al Mohler from a few years ago. Uh, they did a conference on kind of the exclusive gospel. 
And his sermon mm-hmm. was called something like the, op- the open door is the only door. And it was a full-throated defense of the exclusivity of the gospel and why that's actually good news. In a world where anything exclusive is kind of suspect, it was a really good message. Uh, I would say number number four was Kevin DeYoung's sermon a few years ago on scripture. I think it was called The Scriptures mm-hmm. Cannot Be Broken after what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And it was an argument for inerrancy in the Bible from the Bible. What what are the arguments from the Bible for the authority and the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture? That was just an awesome message from Kevin DeYoung. Number three, I would say was probably this year Piper's message. And it was on the death of Christ and the death of sin, which we may do an episode on this, or I may write on it later. So I won't give too much, but if you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, it is so good. It's about why we are sometimes hesitant to preach imperatives, or even when we're studying the Bible, how we can disconnect the death of Christ and the daily aspect of putting sin to death in our life. And those two things are connected. In fact, you cannot have one without the other. And uh, that sermon was really, really good. Uh, Number two, C.J. Mahaney, I I think this was the first year I went in 2012. He preached a a sermon from... uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, and it was basically, I cannot remember the name of it, but it was basically about discouragement and uh, what happens when a pastor loses heart or when a Christian leader loses heart and the way that God encourages us. It was just, it's one of my favorite sermons of all time. And then Mm -hmm. the last one, I'll echo something that you just said. I think maybe one of my favorite single sermons, which is really hard to pick, but uh, one of my favorite single sermons of all time is called The Underestimated God by Ligon Duncan. And it's about the story of Elijah when he flees from Jezebel out into the wilderness. And I just think that was, it's one of my favorite sermons. I've probably listened to it seven or eight times. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely one of my favorite sermons of all time. It definitely one of my favorite Ligon Duncan moments, but that, that sermon on Elijah is one of my favorites. So that's my top five T4G sermons of all time. Wow. Yeah. They've, they've really just had a good lineup over the years and they brought a lot of new younger speakers into the limelight. And I think that's important for established figures to bring along other speakers as well. Yeah, they've done a good job of introducing all kinds of people from different denominations, backgrounds, all really as the conference name together for the gospel. And they did that this year with a speaker that uh, I was I was looking forward to because uh, I knew about him, but was also surprised just by how great this sermon was and um, the encouragement that came with it. And I think it was one of your favorites as well. It was Shy Lynn's message, Remember Jesus Christ. It surprised me a little, uh, and you can talk about who he is, because he's not really my era, although I remember listening to some of his, uh, he's a you know Christian rapper, basically, and he delivered a very good sermon, well-constructed, mm-hmm. well-researched, uh, biblically solid. That was, uh, it was really well done. But he's had a big effect on you, as I recall, because you were kind of in that era. And he was one of those rare people that's a Christian rapper, but he had a lot of theology in what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll do a little recap. I think probably a lot of our listeners, if, if you're younger, you probably remember this era. You know, Christian rap got really big, I would say, in the early 2000s, 2005, 6, 7, 8, 
you had people like Lecrae and Tripoli and Shobaraka and the 116 Click is this group of reformed rappers who, you know, I think had been radically saved. I mean, a lot of people know Lecrae's story. He was just radically saved, converted. He took what he had, which was a love for hip hop music and a lot of talent, and he started rapping the gospel. And the whole movement of these guys coming on to the preaching of whether it be John MacArthur or John Piper or Tim Keller and a lot of these preachers, they coupled really great music and um, evangelism with really solid theology. And so I, I was definitely into that. I loved that group. I love those guys. I still listen to Lecrae's rebel album or flame or uh, Tripoli every now and then, but I will say one of the ones I benefited the most from was Shy Lin. And so Shy Lin, I think in 2008, released the album called The Atonement. And I, I've said this before, I mean, no disrespect to my uh, seminary education. I learned more theology in that album that I still reference today because it's so catchy than I did in my MDiv in a lot of courses that I took there. And one of the reasons is because Shai Lin is one of those unique guys. He's insanely gifted lyrically, but he's he's really gifted intellectually as well. He did the Capitol Hill Baptist Church internship with Mark Dever. And I had heard, I don't have any, uh, you know, I haven't heard from Shai Lin or Mark Dever, obviously, on this. But I've, I had heard that early on after he had done that internship, he would send his lyrics before he he pushed play on the CD to Mark Dever to look over and talk about. I mean, he's he's really interested in making sure that the theology of these lyrics is really sound. And so his atonement CD has a has a uh his his atonement album has little clips of different preachers in it. He he has uh atonement QA where he goes through and defines all these terms in the atonement. I would just say if you're looking for something to get started on theology, just listen to that a few times, run a couple of those lyrics through your mind. It's a great way to memorize snappy, quick, memorable definitions mm -hmm. for all kinds of things, propitiation and expiation and sin and all of that. It's, it, it's, just, it's stuck in my mind for years. And so that's how I got to know him. He's married to Blair Lynn, who's a spoken word artist. She's actually become probably as popular as he is uh, in the last few years. And he, he actually has a new book out called The New Reformation, where he's talking about a little bit of this movement of the reformed rap group, what happened to them. A lot of them have kind of gone off to do other things, but uh, Shailen has continued mm -hmm. to make God-glorifying theology rich music. He planted a church in 2016, but now he's on he's on staff at Delray Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And I think because of his friendship with Mark uh, Dever, he was invited to give an address this year at T4G. And what I loved about it was he picked a passage from 2 Timothy. And if you've studied through 2 Timothy before, you've you've thought this same thing. He Paul gets to the point where he's giving his final words to Timothy. Uh -oh. And he says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. And you think to yourself, why would he have to say that? You know, why, yes. why, why would he feel the need? You know, Timothy is a young pastor. He's in the church at Ephesus, which has such a rich history. He's Paul's mm -hmm. disciple and mentee. And then all of a sudden, Paul says, oh, yeah, don't forget about Jesus. 
And that was his text. And he addresses this question. Is it, that seems like something kind of odd for Paul to write there. Well, on, on the surface, it does. And obviously, uh, Shailen does a good job of talking about why that might be. But I think that's really timely for us that uh, in, in our time, because there's so many distractions. I remember when I left the business world and became a pastor, I had read a Keller quote, and he said, becoming a pastor will either make you a better Christian or a worse Christian, but you won't stay the same. And my, uh, and maybe this is just me talking, but my observation watching people is that the tendency is to make you not as good a Christian. Mm -hmm. And I say that tendency, not because of a flaw in the people, but because the quote business of doing church can honestly push the, the love of Jesus Christ out of your life. Uh, that's just been my experience. And again, that may just be me. So I, you know, as I think about that, when I listened to it, I thought, you know, that's Paul could be writing that to me. Don't forget Jesus Christ in the midst well, of everything else. You're exactly right. I mean, it, it sounds kind of cynical to say, but it really just is a practical consideration when you're in ministry. It is really easy to get swept up either in all the pragmatics and things you do day to day and drift a little bit away from Jesus being the center of what you're doing. It's also easy. One, one of the things you see is people who just get so familiar with holy remarkable, amazing things that all of a sudden they begin to lose their luster a little bit. And those are two hazards in ministry. When I was doing uh, interns and residents at crossings, when we'd bring in the intern class on the first day, one of the things I always loved to do was give a talk called how to stay Christian in ministry. And uh, you, you would see everybody's head turn a little bit like, what do you mean how to stay Christian in ministry? And one of the things you have to talk about is this command, remember Jesus Christ is a very important thing to remind yourself of, whether you're in ministry vocationally or not, whether you're serving, whether you're teaching in any way. Remember, Jesus Christ is really good advice. He is the center of everything we do. And uh, as much as we would hate to admit it, there are moments where you kind of start to forget that a little bit. You need that reminder. No, the whole reason and the central aspect right. of all of this is Jesus Christ, the seed of David, risen from the dead, as preached in Paul's gospel, as he says in, in 2 Timothy 3. Exactly. I think that's very timely. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me, there were two statements that he made in there. I thought we might want to unpack a little bit. But one of them was this. He said, loving doctrine and theology is not the same as loving Jesus Christ. Loving doctrine and theology is not the same as loving Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to talk about both sides of that equation, if you will. And he said, you know, but if somebody said to me, I love Jesus Christ, but I don't know theology, he would say, you know, his answer was, then I'm not sure how you could possibly know Jesus Christ. Uh, on the flip side, though, he's making a really good point there is that you can you can fall in love with doctrine, but really need to hear that remember Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I've been kind of both convicted about and just hammering in our church is that you can go through all the Christian motives or all, all the Christian activities with the right motives and still be close to Jesus, but not really spend time with him. So for example, 
a lot of times the problem that people have with their quiet times is that they're doing exactly what he's saying here. They, they do their quiet time either out of duty sometimes, but even out of joy of studying the text and learning something new or reading the stories. But are you actually connecting with God? Are you getting face-to-face with God? Are you getting kind of God adjacent during your quiet time? And it's easy to go through a month of your quiet time and never really connect with God. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, a couple of thoughts I had on this and see what you think about it. I think without truth, we end up loving a figment of our imagination. And that's how I read Matthew 7, where Jesus says, uh, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, in that day, many will say, Lord, didn't we do good deeds in your name? And he said, I never knew you. I taught on this recently. And if you look at that text carefully, in my view, what he's basically saying is you did indeed do good deeds and you didn't do them in my name. But you but basically you're in love with the figment of your imagination. I don't actually know you. And so I think without truth, we we run the risk of being in love with a Jesus of our own making. However, and this was the, the one that hit me harder, is without personal devotion to Jesus, we really don't have a framework for any of our doctrine. I don't think doctrine can be unhooked. Theology can be disconnected from our personal devotion, faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the part that really got my attention. Yeah, I had somebody tell me in seminary, uh, theology should always lead to doxology. Mm-hmm. And this is this is kind of interesting with Shai Lin, because two of Shai Lin's album are part of the uh, lyrical theology project that he undertook. So in 2013, he released an album called Lyrical Theology Part One Theology. And then in 2014, he released an album called Lyrical Theology Part Two doxology, which just embodies this theme that so theology, the study of God should lead to doxology, which, which, which literally means like a word of glory, but it, it mm-hmm. means to praise. And mm-hmm. so you see these doxologies in the New Testament, which is when an, a New Testament author breaks out in praise. So the, mm-hmm. I think maybe the most famous example is in Romans chapter 11. And Paul is just going through this very detailed uh, argument it's one of the most difficult parts of his letters, I think, to really get right, Romans 9 through 11. Mm-hmm. And it's at the end of, you know, 11 chapters of very dense, theological, passionate argumentation. And it's almost like he can't contain himself where right. he says, who can know the mind of the Lord? And his ways are unsearchable. And he breaks out in the midst of this theology in doxology, praising God. From him and to him and through him are all things. And that's essentially what the the study of theology should be. If it's disconnected from worship in your own heart, then number one, it's not good theology. But number two, you're not studying it in such a way. You're studying it from a distance to where you can be unaffected by it. Well, the, the Bible and theology, the study of God, salvation, all of that should not be studied in a way that you are unaffected. The whole point is that you would be transformed. And uh, if you're really doing it right, you should grow in your appreciation for God, in your passion for him. Uh, What happens sometimes, and I think this is probably a stereotype that's more useful as a stereotype than it is true, but I have seen this happen, is people get so absorbed with theology and they love the connections and the knowledge and the big words and the concepts 
but their heart grows very dim inside. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's interesting, but it doesn't really mean anything or makes them uh, judgmental or look down on other people. Whereas it should make you bear the fruits of the spirit. Good theology should make you bear the fruits of the spirit in your life. Loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, good uh, to be around uh faithful to other people, not just the truth. And that's the ideal case. But but sometimes it does lead to people who, where Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That passage is a lot of times taken out of context. But, but we can see a connection here where you start to get so absorbed in this discipline, and you really do forget to remember Jesus Christ. Right. Now you kind of mentioned there's two there's two ways to this street, and I want to make sure that we get both of these because this to me is kind of the whipping boy of a lot of church traditions. Well, theology is just for the ivory tower. You get lost in theology and you lose your first love. Like I said, that that has happened, and I've seen this happen to people before. But I also think the flip side of that is you can get so anti-theological that you don't really know who or what you're supposed to be worshiping and loving anymore in your own life. It would be like, you know, if you propose and you say, I love you and I want to marry you, uh, but I don't really want to know anything about you. That would not be good for your engagement, for your future (laughs) marriage. No, it would not. Because when you love something, you do want to know all about it. You want to find out right. about it. You want to hear about it. You want to tell the same stories over and over. You want to learn new things. And you want to get to know that person because you love them. And so love and knowledge really do go together inseparably. It reminds me of when James says, you know, faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. Love for God without knowledge is dead. Uh, you show your love in one way by knowing, by studying, by learning about God. And so there really is a two-way street here. There's errors on both sides, but the middle way is a theology of rich knowledge of God that is practical and life-transforming that leads you to worship and glorify God in your life. Yeah, I I completely agree. And it makes me think of Paul's statement about his fellow Jews. He said, I testify that they have zeal, but without knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, a lot of people have said this, what I'm about to say, but I think it was Matt Chandler that coined it so succinctly. He said, everybody has a theology. Some of them are just heretical. Right. And I I really do, and a lot of people have made that point, is, uh, you know, Cliff Sanders says this all the time at Crossings, is everyone has a theology, and that's true. Some right. of them are just unexamined. You, know, you just haven't thought about your theology. Somebody else has pumped that into your head. But we do have a theology. And it does seem to me that, first off, good theology has to be true, has to be accurate. Uh, and secondly, it has to lead to doxology. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can tell you how many times I'm not using myself as a positive example, but I do know this feeling. And I'll bet a lot of people listening to us know this feeling. You study the word and you study the word. And as you peel away the layers of understanding, you begin to have an awe of God and you begin to realize that God is cooler than you ever imagined. And the scripture is truer than I ever realized. Mm -hmm. And I've had that feeling so many times as I, I always knew this was true, but as you peel the onion, so to speak, and you learn more and more, you realize, okay, this just gets truer and truer. Yes. I was reading the devotional the other day with Laura, and and one of the things that it was talking about is, you know, we're comfortable saying things like there are joys and 
qualities of the Christian experience that can only come through serving. We hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know? And that really is true. There's there's things that you can know about God when you serve, when you give things away, when you're giving of yourself that you can't really know any other way. Same thing is true right. with suffering. Uh, you can learn things in your suffering that God cannot teach you any other way. This sounds basic, but there are things, there are joys and loves and times of worship that you can only have by learning things. Learning mm-hmm. about God, discovering something leads to a very peculiar and particular kind of joy. And, uh, you know, Shylin's warning is don't mistake knowledge by itself for this kind of thing, which is knowledge and love right. and worship all wrapped up into one. And I think it is a nice critique uh, to be reminded that you can spend all the time in the world learning things. You can get infatuated with getting doctrine right. And in the midst of that, you actually can miss loving God. And so I thought that was a helpful critique. It's a great examination of what it really looks like to grow completely Mm -hmm. and wholly to love God, not only with your heart and soul, but with your mind as well. And this was a great part of the message. I agree. Okay, the second one, though, I really want to get your input on this. Uh, He made a statement that everybody here will say, yes, I knew that. But the more I thought about it, uh, uh, it just led me down some interesting roads. He said, Paul wasn't suffering because he was preaching the crucifixion. That was a fact. And everybody knew that Jesus Christ had been crucified under the uh, governorship of Pontius Pilate. He was suffering because he preached the resurrection. What do you think about that? This is a really interesting part of the message, and it's really true. Uh, what I did to, to approach this was I just went back and started thinking about this theme in Scripture. And this is where word studies can be really helpful in tracing a theme. So what I did was I went and looked at all the instances of the word resurrection, which is the word anastasis. It's where we get the word Anastasia from in Luke and Acts, just because I happen to know that it's a big theme in Luke and Acts. It's Mm -hmm. also a big theme in Paul's letters, but this is where you get the description of Paul's suffering and why he's suffering. And I'll just run through a couple of the instances here to show you what a big theme this is in Paul's life. The, the first time you see it in this kind of way, in a controversy kind of way, is actually in Luke chapter 20, where some Sadducees, which I'll let you give a little background on the Sadducees here in a second, but to set up the story, the Sadducees come and they want to test Jesus. What they really want to do is reinforce their belief that there is no mm-hmm. resurrection of the dead. And the way they do this is they want to show that it is ridiculous to believe in an afterlife or resurrection. And so what they ask Jesus is, so there are these seven brothers and the first brother gets married and he dies. And so his little brother marries the same woman and so on and so on. And so she ends up having been married to all of these seven brothers. And they ask Jesus in the age to come, who will she be married to in the resurrection? And the QED part of this is, therefore, you cannot figure out this question. Therefore, there cannot be a resurrection of the dead. And Jesus obviously confronts their understanding by saying, you actually know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. There isn't any giving of marriage in the the life to come. But this just gives you a glimpse. At the time, there was a very well-known and strong contingent. We're going to see them again in the book of Acts. But there's a very prominent contingent who do not believe in resurrection. Right. Well, and to be fair, there's it's not a robust doctrine in the Mosaic law. 
and doesn't really show up in, in uh, till the prophetic writings. I mean, you get a sense of it. Obviously, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. But uh, I, I agree. The Sadducees were hostile because of that. What, what hit me about the resurrection is, and I may be being a little cynical here, so you can call me out if you will, but crucifixion, to me, the crucifixion of Christ is the greatest act of love in, in all of history, to bear the sins of individuals, to be a scapegoat, if you will, and go to the cross to pay a debt that we could never pay. And who doesn't like that? Again, I may be being cynical, but who doesn't like that? I mean, it's really popular to preach the crucifixion because that just shows God's great love for you. The problem with the resurrection is the resurrection demands something. You know, you could, I, I realize this is not a good response to God, but you could say, wow, thank you so much for dying on the cross for me and my sins, and then just leave it there. It makes no demands of us. It gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, and that's good. But the resurrection is this essence of the gospel, of the good news. And the resurrection makes a demand on our lives. Mm -hmm. And I, to me, that's, that's probably where the average person, they may not phrase it that way. And it's one of the reasons I think we don't hear maybe as much preaching about the resurrection in some circles as we do about the cross. I, I think you're onto something here because the resurrection is a lot harder to apply. Number one, it, it requires more of us, but it's, it's much harder to apply. The gospel message that we're familiar with is Jesus loved you so much that he died and shed his own blood so you could be forgiven. Well, yes, but that's only part of the truth. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, against some people in that church who believed, people don't rise from the dead, which yeah. is what everyone believed you know, other than reading the scriptures until somebody did rise from the dead. Right. And uh, he says, well, if nobody's risen from the dead, then even Christ has not risen from the dead. And if Christ has not risen from the dead, then you're still in your sins. So th this is a little bit of a theological problem for some of the way that we explain the gospel. Paul seemed to believe that without the resurrection, this whole thing doesn't work. Now, we, mm -hmm. we typically preach the cross like all it took for you to be freed from your sin is Jesus' blood, which was shed on the cross. He just had to die. But the question, okay, Paul, why did he have to rise, is actually a more difficult question, and it's harder to apply in your life. So on my, uh, I think in, this, in the series that we were doing leading up to Easter, one of the things I was talking about is on Easter you say, or this is a sermon after Easter, because I didn't get to preach on Easter because – Davy was born. But one of the things we say is he is risen. And then the response to that is he is risen indeed. So what? You know, he is right. risen indeed. So what? And I think part of rediscovering this theme in, in the book of Acts especially is what is the so what of the resurrection? Because it, it was a clearly a huge deal to them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That is it. If we don't have that, we do not have a gospel. And part of it is the background of you did have other people who claimed to be the Messiah. You do have other relatively righteous people in the Bible who die mm -hmm. and stay dead. But none of those people can actually redeem God's people. You have to have a God man, first of all, fully God, fully man. And you have to have a resurrection. Second of all, the check has to clear. He has to be raised from the dead. Death has to be defeated. Right. And uh, let, me, let me go through a couple of these passages in Acts that will set us up then to say, what is the so what 
of the resurrection. So in chapter one of Acts, you get the 12 disciples and they are selecting another disciple. So you remember Judas doesn't mm-hmm. work out. They need to get 12 because there are 12 tribes of Israel. So they got to have a 12th disciple. So they're casting lots to get the 12th disciple. And one of the criteria that they use is this person needs to have been a witness to the resurrection. They need to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ to be one of the disciples. That's how important it was to them. In fact, Paul stakes his apostleship on the fact that he has seen the risen Lord. In chapters two through four, the Jewish persecution begins to break out against the disciples. So Peter and John are in prison. They're beaten. They're set free. They're beaten. They're told never to preach this anymore. The reason they're being punished and the reason that they are in opposition with the Jews is because they're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. This is the key break here with the Jews. They are preaching the resurrection of the dead. In Acts chapter 17, you get Paul in Athens on Mars Hill. He goes and he's talking with these philosophers. And in chapter 17, now this is an all Greek audience. So you got problems with the Jews. You got a whole Greek audience that says, now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. And this is after he's been kicked out and left for dead in Derby and Lystra. His spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the radical part of his message on Mars Hill. They're tracking with him as long as he's saying things that they are comfortable with and believe. And then all of a sudden he mentions the resurrection. And that's when people stop listening. They could not accept the resurrection. Now, let me give you a couple more. Acts 23, Paul's on trial before the Pharisees, Jewish Mm -hmm. leaders. He sees an opportunity to make this trial go off the rails. What does he do? He notices there are Sadducees in the room. There are Pharisees in the room. What should I do to derail this? Just bring up the resurrection. All of a sudden, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are arguing with each other. Everybody forgets about Paul. And he gets another hearing in the next chapter. And so in chapter 24, he goes before Felix, who's a Roman, but he has a good knowledge of the way, it says in chapter 24. And his Jewish accusers come, and um, Paul says, let these men themselves say what wrong they found when I stood up before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. That line really sticks with me here. Paul could have said, it is on behalf of the death of Christ that I am here for you. And and there's a whole big thing. This is just a side note. There's a whole big thing in scholarship that when Paul says the death of Christ, it's shorthand meaning the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. He could have said something like, I'm here to talk about the cross, or I'm here on behalf of the cross. That's how we would sometimes phrase that. But it's interesting to me that he says, is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am here before you this day. So that's just some of the evidence from the book of Acts of how central this was. What is, what is your takeaway from that? Why is this such a central issue? Well, yeah, you know, in the most basic sense is you, it does no good to have your sins forgiven. And so now you are reconciled with God and you are still a slave to death. Death has not been defeated. Otherwise, you basically are following Gandhi. You got a really good teacher 
who said that he died for your sins. Now God is favorably disposed toward you, but he died. He's gone. And maybe you have some temporal benefit. You know, see what I'm saying? Without the without the resurrection, there is a temporal benefit, you could argue, from following Christ and from being forgiven for your sins. But if death has not been defeated, then we all end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. It's essential that uh, we are freed from slavery and not just our slavery to sin, but sin leads to death. And so uh, the crucial point of the book of Revelation to me is when sin and death are thrown into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate fear of all human beings is this ultimate separation of death. And when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, he has overcome the most profound human fear there is and freed us from something that was never intended to be here. I think I remember you talking about um, the garden, the fall of humanity, because Adam and Eve were never intended to die. But when sin entered the world, I think you said it, then death is the door that every human being will now have to go through. Mm -hmm. And that didn't get undone until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. That that is the big reason in my mind is death. The point of all this is death is being defeated and Jesus defeats death by dying and then rising. Death couldn't hold him. He's alive. And, and there are so many other things that go with this because he's alive. He is constantly interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the father reigning. He is the king over his kingdom. The kingdom has a real living risen king. And he will be the king forever because he's resurrected mm-hmm. from the dead. He is, um, if we are in him, he is the archetype for everything that we do. So he suffered, we will suffer. He died, we will die unless he comes back first. He rose, we will rise. And mm-hmm. I, I was talking about this not too long ago. We act like forgiveness is the key thing that we're after. But forgiveness is just step one of getting us to what we're really after. If, you, if you're just forgiven then you're back to net zero (laughs) and you can die with a clear conscience if you want, but it doesn't do what the gospel promises to do. The gospel doesn't just promise to clear your sin. It promises to reunite you with God. This is why I think Mm -hmm. Romans five one is such an underappreciated part of the argument in Romans is since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by his grace in which we stand we have a new reality. We're a new creation that has been reunited with God. We're not just brought back from negative to zero. We are now in the positive. We have taken on Christ's righteousness. He is living, presenting us to God, interceding for us. We'll be with him forever. That only happens if you have a resurrected Messiah. If you have a Messiah who is really great, kind of a Gandhi Messiah, taught great things, made a big impact, but stays dead, then the best he could do, and Gandhi couldn't do this, But the best that the God man could do if he stayed dead was just get you back to zero. Just he's a sacrifice. He forgives your sins, but you are not brought back in unity and relationship with God again. And that's what Christ promises to do. Anybody who is in him is going to be reunited favorably with the father back in the family forever. And you only get that if you have a resurrection. Yeah, I think of Romans 6, 4, which uh, says we were buried uh, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that's the whole second part of that equation is it's hard to follow 
someone who is dead. It's hard to have a relationship with someone who is dead. You know, mm-hmm. we serve a living Christ and uh, we walk in newness of life. And that gets back to what I was saying is the, the resurrection makes demands of us. If our Savior is our Lord and he is risen, then we are called to follow him. And it does require uh, putting ourselves to death. Well, that's one of the reasons I thought this was such a powerful message from Shylin is remember Jesus Christ means remember all of this. <laughs> remember exactly. what his resurrection does for us. Remember what his suffering does for us. Remember what his teaching does for us. Remember what his life means for us. And he has a great part. As you would imagine, as good as he is lyrically with words and phrases and um spoken word. He he goes on this little run in the sermon that is just so mm-hmm. powerful. And so I'll leave that for people to listen to. But remembering Jesus contains all of this. And this is what I think Paul was trying to encourage Timothy with is remember the totality of what it means to know Jesus, to be in him, what he's done for us, what you have in him, and use that to guide you and encourage you and to stand on in your ministry. And that's the exact kind of reminder that Timothy needed because it is the antidote to worry, to fear of man, to anxiety, to uh, feeling inadequate, which we know Timothy did. This message of Jesus Christ of the resurrection is everything you need for life and godliness and for ministry. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.